Fighting Through World War II, Episode 80. Ukraine 2022 and the Dutch Hunger Winter. More great unpublished history. Hello, I'm Paul Cheel, and I wish you a welcome to the Fighting Through Second World War podcast in very challenging times. I'm cutting out any formalities on this episode because it's a bit of a one-off about Ukraine. Events in Ukraine have created a refugee crisis in Europe at a scale not seen since the Second World War, when, according to Wikipedia, mass evacuation forced displacement, expulsion and deportation of millions of people took place across most countries involved in World War II. The mass movement of people, most of them refugees, had either been caused by the hostilities or enforced by the former Axis and the Allied powers. At least two and a half million people have fled the country since February the 24th, and according to the United Nations, the total could top four million. Today I'm going to give you a few insights into Dad's experiences during the war, where support from third parties was so welcome. That is part of the theme for this episode, and I've got a very timely family story about the Dutch hunger crisis in World War II. To end the show, I'm going to change tack and bring you a modern story of adventure about someone stranded on the French mountaintops overnight and how they survived. It's a bit of escapism nonetheless true, to help take our minds off the horrendous goings-on over in Eastern Europe. So, this is a very special episode to acknowledge the situation in Ukraine. If anyone anywhere in the world is unsure about the realities of Russia invading Ukraine with tanks, troops, helicopters and planes, then you shouldn't be in any doubt. It's reported by respected sources to be happening now. There are plenty of independent postings on the internet showing some of the action and violence going on out there and of course BBC, Sky and CNN are reliable sources and the BBC's Newscast and Ukrainecast podcasts are also excellent sources of information and deeper debate. If you want additional insight you could also check out the latest excellent Economist magazine podcast March the 7th. Right now, I want to make a plea for you to make a donation to one of the charitable causes which are supporting the millions of refugees streaming out of the Ukraine into the various Baltic countries, majorly Poland, but also Hungary, Slovakia, Estonia, Moldova and Romania and increasingly Western Europe. I'm particularly impressed with the Polish nation for being foremost in helping these poor people taking in over a million refugees. In this podcast the Poles have featured several times in the past offering support to prisoners of war and episode 29 about Brian Asquith is a great example of that. It's about a British POW in Poland and how he survived the war to tell the tale in no small part due to kindness offered by the Polish people. That's episode 29. I've personally made donations to the Red Cross and the Salvation Army, both of whom are doing work out there. 
and I'm putting links in the show notes for your convenience if you'd like to do the same. You'll have heard me mention these charities on occasion in previous episodes, and I know Dad in particular held the Salvation Army in high regard. Here's a passage from Dad's book about the refugee situation he found himself in in Germany at the end of the war when he was in the regimental police in Hamburg and the surrounding area. Dad is corporal in charge of the regimental police in war-torn Germany in 1945. He regularly tours some of the cities like Hamburg, Dusseldorf and Essen, helping to keep the peace. They've just been given the green light to actually interact civilly with the German population. When the fraternisation ban was lifted, it was much more agreeable to be able to pass a civil word to people who would say the odd word of greeting, but in English, of course. I never got close enough to them to be able to learn any of their language, except the time of day. Most instructions I had to give during the course of my duties were given in sign language, and I did not have any problems in that respect. They'd been our bitter enemies for too long to be forgiven so quickly. It would have to be seen whom the victors were without any signs of aggression on our part, and that is how we behaved, going about our responsibilities quietly and purposefully. I visited Hamburg several times on duty, and the destruction was unbelievable, with a complete collapse of large areas. Hamburg alone paid the penalty for the suffering of Coventry. It had been avenged. There was never a dull moment for me, and there was always interesting work to be done. One of the most distressing of those tasks took place over a period of three days. The police had to accompany six officers on a very unpleasant duty, but at the same time giving us first-hand insight into what had taken place in Germany over the past years. We went to a large field about four miles from our billets, and what we saw had to be seen to be believed. There were literally many thousands of displaced persons standing around, with vacant, hungry looks upon their faces, waiting for somebody to guide them and to tell them what was being done to help them. There were other people, half-witted because of their experiences. None of them seemed to know where their families were. All were undernourished, underclothed, and altogether a tragic sight. Those poor souls had been uprooted from their homes and families forcibly from all over the occupied territories, and made to contribute every sinew in their bodies to the German war effort by their forced labour in the factories. We set up trestle tables, and an officer, together with a linguist who spoke several languages, sat at each table. We police had to keep order, and organise the poor souls into single file to wait their turn to seek a solution to an extremely difficult problem. It was all done by signs on our part because of the many languages involved, but that was no problem since most of them were docile, being well behaved, and just stood there, wondering what on earth was to happen to them, as if in a trance. I was at a table all day for three days, listening to the very patient officers asking questions, all beyond my comprehension. I thought how marvellous it was to be a linguist, 
watching those clever men with their voices and signs, trying to get to the bottom of so many problems. The people came from so many different countries, and to me it looked like an impossible task. Those people wanted to return to the homes which they'd been forced to leave, but it was easier said than done. Their minds must have been a torment. It was a monumental task which had to be done as quickly and humanely as possible, but meantime they had to be fed and protected against any one of them who'd gone berserk. We had to show sympathy, kindness, firmness, and above all understanding of the needs of those poor individuals who longed to get back to the folk they'd expected to find waiting for them. What a tremendous upheaval of humanity the Nazi regime had brought about in their determination to subjugate the once great nations of Europe. It was a marvel that it was ever sorted out, but for many a poor soul it never would be. Being a witness to what happened over those three days was something I will never forget, but for that heaving mass of tragic humanity who paid the penalty with their mental and physical suffering, it would be an almost unbelievable burden which they'd take to their graves. The Allies did a monumental job here, and the country should be forever grateful. I was pleased I'd joined the regimental police, because my duties enabled me to see firsthand the aftermath of the war in Germany, which I would otherwise never have seen, or even believed. I also came to realise that not all Germans wanted the war, with all the consequences which had been forced upon them by a ruthless and heartless dictatorship. Well, you can take whatever message you like from that passage, and whilst it's not directly comparable with the situation being faced in Ukraine, you can nevertheless bet that there are plenty of instances of suffering which we can't possibly begin to relate to, yet still deserve our compassion and support. So with that in mind, I ask that you consider making a donation to one of the many charitable appeals which are out there at the moment. There is a few links in the show notes which will help you, and I'll give you a few details later in the show. And before I forget, I've made a plea before for people to share the show, and uh, I'm grateful for some people who've already done that. Um, if it's within your power, please do share this show to anybody you know. I wasn't going to share any family stories in this episode because I was trying to keep it focused. Um, I wasn't going to do any until a serendipitous email I had from bus from Amsterdam came in about the Dutch hunger winter during World War Two. Firstly, Bus, short for Sebastian, said, I discovered your podcast a couple of weeks ago, and I think it's my healthiest addiction so far. Thanks for keeping me company during long walks through Amsterdam, kilometres of cycling through the Dutch countryside, and long drives home from work. My grandmother's name was Afra Schouten Reiter. She lived in Middenbeemster on the Dutch countryside. She started her diaries on the 1st of January 1945, which is called The Hunger Winter in Holland. Listen, before we go any further, I'd like to give you a little bit of backstory to The Hunger Winter, courtesy of Wikipedia. The Dutch famine 
of 1944-45 was known in the Netherlands as the Hongerwinter, and it's a famine that took place in the German-occupied Netherlands during the winter of 1944, near the end of the war. A German blockade cut off food and fuel shipments from farm towns. Some four and a half million people were affected and survived thanks to soup kitchens, and there were roughly 20,000 deaths. The famine was alleviated by the liberation of the provinces by the Allies in May 1945. Prior to that, baked bread from flour was shipped in from Sweden, and there was an airlift of food by the Royal Air Force, the Royal Canadian Air Force, and the United States Army Air Force, under an agreement with the Germans that if the Germans did not shoot at the Mercy flights, the Allies would not bomb the German positions. All this helped to mitigate the famine. <sighs> Do you know, I can't believe the coincidences in these stories. Um, these were Operations Manor and Chowhound, and Operation Faust also trucked in food to the province. Bus continues. My grandmother writes about her beloved uncle, Jan Reiter, and his son Joris, who were taken by the Nazis. They were in the Dutch resistance and were betrayed by someone. They were eventually shot in the Dutch dunes on the infamous Valsdorperflakte, where a lot of Dutch people were shot. My grandmother made sandwiches for people who'd walked all the way from Amsterdam, 40 kilometres, to get some food for their children at home, because there was none in the city. She writes about a friend taken to labour camps, with some returning, but some didn't. She wrote a passage on the liberation as well, the parties, the Canadians entering town, and the traitors being walked through the village. At one point, there's a young German soldier trying to flirt with her when she was knitting socks on the steps at the front door of the house, and she writes something about him having to F off and giving him the good old finger. Besides all that, there are some personal stories of a young 17-year-old girl who wanted nothing but a normal life, dancing, ice skating, <laughs> and not going to church, ha-ha. Groton Wheat Amsterdam bus bus thank you so much for sharing this it's it's only an overview of your grandmother's diary but my goodness how much emotion uh, and messages there are packed into such a short passage and i have to say i shed a, I shed a tear when i read it bus you're exploring getting the full diary translated from old dutch into english and my goodness if there's any more to share I'm sure you'll all hear about it on the Fighting Through podcast first. Good luck, Bus, and thanks again, and best wishes to your family. You know, <laughs> I especially liked the irony of Bus's grandmother telling the German soldier in no uncertain terms which way to go home, because, <laughs> because there's, that's something of a catchphrase amongst the Ukrainians during this, this recent war. Oh dear, I, f I feel quite exhausted reading that and the parallels between what Bus's grandmother experienced and what the poor people of Ukraine are going through at this very moment is uncanny. So, on that note, please do donate directly 
to one of the links in the show notes. If every listener donated £10 or $10, that could raise as much as 60000 to help support these poor, homeless Ukrainians. I've tagged the links, so I'll at least be able to tell you how many people donated, but I won't know who they are or how much, etc. Don't forget that no matter the amount, your donation could reach someone in Ukraine when they need it most. It could be food, clean water or a safe place to sleep for a family. It could be their lifeline. And here are some choices. The Disasters Emergency Committee, DEC, is a coalition of 15 leading charities and is providing emergency aid. The funds are being used by charities inside Ukraine and at its borders to provide people fleeing the war with food, water, medical assistance, protection and trauma care. The British Red Cross is part of the DEC and is raising money for those still in the country as well as those leaving. Their teams have already been distributing warm clothes and sleeping bags, both absolute necessities. It's forecast that this cold weather might stick around for a while, so to help protect people from the freezing temperatures, they're also providing specialised items like thermal blankets and insulated tents. And this is what the Salvation Army are saying on their website. As the conflict in Ukraine escalates, the Salvation Army already has people on the ground providing food, shelter, clothing, prayers and hope. The Salvation Army has programmes and personnel in Ukraine, Russia, Poland, Romania, Moldova and other European countries who are able to offer practical assistance as soon as the violence escalated. Some rushed to the border of Ukraine to hand out urgent provisions, while others made arrangements to offer support to Ukraine's people seeking shelter in their country. In particular, the Salvation Army's response includes Romania has formed an emergency team, filled the car with essential items and travelled to the border to offer support. Moldova will provide free assistance to Ukraine's displaced people, including temporary accommodation, hot meals and drinks, access to Wi-Fi and other necessary items. Poland is preparing relief parcels for Ukrainian people coming into the country. Slovakia is preparing to offer accommodation, food and drink and emotional support. The Czech Republic is already home to some 200,000 Ukrainians and anticipates many more of them will seek help from family and friends already in the country. The Salvation Army in the Czech Republic has available capacity in residential centres, so they stand ready to provide support. The Salvation Army in Ukraine reports that officers are sleeping in shelters alongside the communities they serve, but doing their best to offer hope and support. So, if you want to donate to the Salvation Army Ukraine Crisis Appeal, there's a link in the show notes, amongst others. Please do your best to support these charities. There are links in the show notes that'll be in your local app where you're listening or in the main show notes on the website, fightingthroughpodcast.co.uk, as usual. A bit of a family story now from Root Shermer from the Netherlands. Um, this is about Operation Manor. 
and I've used this before in the show, but it seems so appropriate, I will repeat it. This Operation Manor was a food supply operation carried out by Bomber Command. Manor was carried out by British RAF units as well as squadrons from Australia, Canada, New Zealand and the Polish Air Forces and the 8th USAAF, Operation Chowhound. The winter of 1944-45 had left the Dutch starved and many died of cold and lack of food, especially in the cities. The operation took place in May 1945 with permission from the German occupiers and resulted in many consecutive days of food droppings in the western part of the Netherlands which had by then been sealed off by the Allies from the rest of the liberated country. Root explained further the spectacular part of the op was obviously the food supply by air. My mum told me how utterly astonished she was by the size of the bombers as they flew in at low altitudes. It was a super morale lift for the people. But the majority of the food supply came by lorry and barge. My in-laws both lived on a barge and went through the war as kids. Both families were involved in shipping food through the lines to the sealed-off parts of Holland. Interestingly, the operation continued for days after the capitulation of the Germans since it took time for the Canadians to move into the zone of occupation and get things organised there. Even after that, quite a few people died from months of starvation, which actually started when the Dutch railways started their strike on the 17th of September 1944 in support of Operation Market Garden. The Germans retaliated by shooting railway personnel and by not allowing food transports. So when winter came, lots of stocked food was gone, which led to mass starvation and people from the cities going out to the farmers to get food. Local food distribution petered out to starvation level. The situation seriously deteriorated and Dutch resistance tried to negotiate food supply to the sealed-off area as early as March, but the Germans would not budge. Only when the war actually appeared to be lost did they consent. I've got a couple of um, BBC People's War stories to share with you now, again on the Dutch hunger winter and this one's from Mrs. Theodora M. Noose, near Kloppenburg, and this is located Arnhem and Holland. And she says, I was a teenager and lived in Arnhem in Holland, and on the 10th of May 1940, the Germans came into Holland, and from then on, we were under German occupation. On the date of the Bridge Too Far, the 16th of September 44, there was a battle going on, but the south of Holland was free but the centre and the west was still occupied. It was called the Hunger Winter. There was no food left and people were starving. We were evacuated from Arnhem into the west and that took nine months. After the war was over in the May, when Hitler was dead, we were able to go back. For five years everyone was hoping the war would be finished, so we were full of ambition and whatever the sacrifice we went through, we thought it would be worth it to be free. We had nothing, but in the end, we didn't mind, as we were free. On the 16th of September, 1944, 
we were told at ten o'clock in the morning by a bulletin that the town had to be empty by six p.m. Otherwise, you'd be shot, whoever you were. My mother couldn't walk as she was an invalid, and it was hard getting out as the Germans took everything, bikes and cars. So we needed to get my mother out. We went to the greengrocer's and got a wheelbarrow and took her out that way. We had to walk seven miles and stayed with friends just outside of Arnhem. After a fortnight, more bulletins went up, and the evacuees were told to leave. So for three days we walked to the west, and along the way we had to sleep on floors in factories. As we made our way, there were between six and seven horses and carts, and they were full of people who were unable to walk. My mother was one of them, but my father, sister, and me all had to walk. Planes came above us, thinking we were a German convoy, but we waved our white flags at them, and then they realised we were evacuees. At the time, everyone thought it would only be a couple of weeks, but that turned out to be nine months. The hunger winter was terrible. There was no food. Children used to go through bins to find something to eat. In the night, you could hear children going to the farmers trying to get food. You could hear them walking. One time, it was early in the morning, and a boy was out walking with a little buggy, and it was covered up. They said to him, "You've done well. What have you got?" And he took the cloth off, and it was his mother, collapsed as she was, too weak to go to the farms to get food, and that happened a lot. When we were evacuees, my sister and I stayed with some hairdressers, and my mother and father stayed with some people. They had to take in evacuees. There was no choice for people. My brother went to church, and he had spaces to hide in from the Germans as he was little. You weren't allowed radios. You couldn't read newspapers. The only news you got was if anyone had a quiet radio, and you got news from England. Then it had to be secret. You could pass the news on, but very carefully. My brother was once stopped by the Germans. He had nothing on him. They questioned him, but let him go. Sometimes the Germans came into homes looking for young men to take them away, so the word was spread as much as you could, and then they hid the men as best they could. But if they were found, they were taken away. Luckily, they didn't find my little brother hiding in the church. My brother-in-law was taken by the Germans and asked why he wasn't working for them. He said, "What? I'll never work with the Germans." So he was taken off and had to dig holes. He made out he had mental problems and caused all manner of trouble. The Germans said he wasn't worth having, so he escaped. He walked miles and miles to get back to us. He was only away three or four weeks, but by the time he got back to us, his head was full of lice. He had a beard and he was dirty as nothing had been washed. As we came back into Arnhem. The Germans had been organising, taking everything good out of our homes to take back to Germany, but they must have been disrupted. As we came back into Arnhem, the Germans had been looting, taking everything good out of the homes to take back to Germany, but they must have been disrupted, as when we went back, things were left on the footpaths. I remember seeing a row of sewing machines outside in the street. We got ours back. But it was rusty, as it had been out a long time. My father had a hairdressing shop, and because he had a shop, 
We were one of the first to be allowed back into Arnhem after the war. We had no food, but very slowly, as the businesses came back in, life carried on. The Swedish Red Cross had a kitchen there for the first few weeks, so we were able to eat. The city of Arnhem was ruined by the Nazis. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Another BBC People's War contribution now from Otto Snell uh, from Rotterdam in the Netherlands. I lived in Rotterdam in the Paul Krugerstraat, just around the corner from a harbour, the Maeshaven. German bomber planes pounded the harbours at the beginning of World War II and I remember sitting at the bottom of the stairs for days, warmly wrapped in a blanket, whilst the bombs rained down not far away. The German occupier's punishment was quite severe when the Dutch underground resistance movement killed a German soldier. They'd choose 12 people at random, women, men, children, put them against a wall and shoot them. The bodies were left on the pavement for a few days. I was lucky enough to escape such a punishment. I was walking on the street when I heard gunshots. When I turned the corner, I was just in time to see the German soldiers get into a vehicle, leaving the bodies on the pavement. The 1944-45 winter was an extremely cold one. Food provisions were minimal. The German authorities decreed that bakers had to provide 200 grams of bread per person per week. The bakers didn't have enough wheat, and simply made up the weight by adding water. Their bread stuck to the palate and had to be scraped off with fingernails. Sugar beet soup was on the menu, and, I was told, tulip bulb soup. The Red Cross arranged with the German authorities to alleviate the hunger by a food drop. I recall the sky littered with bombers dropping food parcels attached to parachutes. An unbelievable sight. My mother received one can of food, a loaf of bread and margarine. The can was a beautiful copper colour. I can see it to this day. It contained finely mashed potatoes, finely mashed carrots and mashed meat, specially formulated for stomachs that could not digest properly. It was the greatest meal of my life. Then my mother, sister and I ate half of the loaf of bread, the other half my mother put away, for tomorrow, she said. Came tomorrow, the bread was mouldy and not edible. Many years later, I learned that the bread was baked in Canada weeks before the drop and put into deep freeze. I learned a lesson at the age of seven. Don't put off till tomorrow, that you can enjoy today. I remember a German soldier walking down the street with a loaf of real bread under his left arm. He gave a slice of bread to each child he saw. I suppose he must have been distressed by the hunger that he saw around him. 
Water and electricity supplies were for a limited time each day. Illumination at night could only be had by those lucky enough to possess a bicycle. The Germans had been confiscating metal for a year or so. The cycle was put on a pedestal in the living room. Each member of the family would in turn pedal away, freewheeling, with the dynamo on the front wheel, producing just a little voltage to power the six-volt headlamp on the bicycle. In the hunger winter, my mother and the neighbour, Mrs Hontel, a devout Roman Catholic with eight children, decided that food had to be obtained somehow. My mother volunteered to cycle to Zealand with two sheets and pillowcases to exchange for food. Paper money had no value. On the way, she hid from German soldiers who were confiscating anything made of metal. The journey took two days. My mother got one bag of potatoes in exchange, half of which was stolen from her on her return journey by equally hungry fellow Dutch people. The two mothers decided they would eat the boiled potato skins. The children ate the potatoes. They were very sick. Their stomachs just couldn't digest those potato peels. My father was a member of the resistance movement, caught and sent to a sort of concentration camp. My uncles and most other men were ordered to work in German labour camps. There were thus not many men about from 1943 to 44. We lived on the second floor. My mother and Mrs Hontel were looking out of the window overlooking the street when Mrs Hontel exclaimed, There goes Mr Williams, the piano tuner. He's going to Mrs Johnson, but she hasn't got a piano. My mother looked at the neighbour, hissed, Shh, and then shook her head in my direction. I didn't have a clue what it was all about at the time, but many years later I realised the man was having a very good time. <laughs> he probably wished the war would never end. I guess he was a Dutch collaborator. On Liberation Day, 5th of May, 1945, his head would have been shaven clean and a swastika painted on it. On my father's return, he received a letter thanking him for his contribution to the resistance movement. It was a printed letter, simply addressed to Dear Sir, with the printed signature of Prince Bernhardt of German descent, husband of Juliana, both of whom spent most of the war years in Canada. My father was extremely angered by the callous letter. He tore it up, proclaiming, I'd never do it again if that's what they think of what I've been through. It was the one and only time I saw him in anger. He never spoke of the war again. Here to finish the show now is some lighter listening. Nothing to do with war or fighting and famine, although the hero of the story did get quite peckish at one point. This is a super story of adventure in the French Alps about an ordinary guy I once met who'd had the most extraordinary experience of surviving up a snowy, freezing-cold mountain overnight. I met Mike Still on a skiing trip years ago, and here's his incredible story. This is One Man's Story of Survival in the Alps, or Avoiding a Wipeout in a Whiteout by Mike Still. It isn't much of an excuse, but 
but I probably would never have begun that crazy skiing journey if the lift man high in the French Savoie Three Valleys Mountains had not urged me on. We oui, Monterey, direct, la. Yes, it's that way. He pointed through the whiteout to a chequered pole marking the start, and only the start, of a far-from-easy, off-piece route to Monterey, part of Maryville. There, if I made it in time, I'd take lifts back to the mountain above Courchevel, where I was staying. Foolishly, I decided to go for it. Skiing blindly in steep, fresh snow, I didn't see another marker pole, or the crevasse, until my ski tips went over it. Stop! I yelled to myself. Reversing gingerly from the edge, I tried climbing back, but a few struggling steps showed me I would never make the top, even if I could see the way. Nothing to do but stand and wait. Surely the ski patrol would come down soon, at the end of the day. No, of course, this was off peace and unpatrolled. I remembered listening to a man who liked to go off into the Cairngorms digging snow caves for the nights, but I quickly dismissed that thought and went on peering into the blankness, imagining the swish of approaching skis. But nobody came. And half an hour later, I knew that nobody would. By then, all lifts had stopped running. There were two options. Ski on blindly to Monterey and hope to hitch or get a taxi to Courchevel, about 20 kilometres. Or dig a snow cave and hope to survive the increasing cold until the weather cleared. A tall order at some 2,400 metres. The first was obviously suicidal. The second was ridiculous, but certainly possible. Alternatively, there was the chance that someone, somewhere, might hear if I shouted loudly, but the only reply was my echoing bad French and the low-pitched moan of a northwest wind. That was when I shivered. More to warm myself than anything else, I drew a straight line across the slope facing the wind-driven snowflakes. I then removed my skis and, using one as a spade, drove it vertically into the line. Repeating the process, I dug out slabs of firm snow until I was standing on a flat area, facing a wall a metre or more high. I was out of the wind. Next I marked an arch on the wall, a structure this shape would be less likely than a square one to collapse on me. I dug non-stop until the cavern was more than a metre long. It was now 7.30pm, less than an hour to dark, I guessed. I lay down inside and found that my legs, even drawn up, remained outside. Digging in further would mean long, slow manoeuvring in dumping the snow blocks. Besides, the thought of being completely immured was appalling. The remaining part of the cave would be an igloo, I decided. Outside, shivering violently, I propped my two-metre skis at an angle from roof to ground as far out as possible and dug them in. Across the skis, I laid the poles, burying the ends in the snow banks on either side. 
I wanted to leave an entrance low at the front, but I needed to build up snow blocks from there. No time for clever design thinking. The whiteout was turning grey and it was now much colder at sundown. So I stood up through the framework and stacked snow blocks from the front and side banks. They seemed to fit like a jigsaw. The final hole was a problem as I hadn't left a big enough block within reach. But I partially closed it with my empty backpack once I was squatting inside. And that was when, quite suddenly, darkness fell. Spring skiing can often mean rain. I'd brought a plastic mat for low-level walking. I lay on it in my room in Col de la Chambre. The relative warmth quickly left me, and I shivered in unrelieved spasms. The snow cave man had stressed the importance of routine exercise. After some experimentation, I found a position that worked. But first, I lay on my back and drummed my heels. This warmed my legs, but torso and arms shivered. So, with knees drawn up, wet gloved hands clamped in armpits, I emulated a straight-jacketed escapologist. I knew this routine would be non-stop for the duration. Sleep was out. It was now dinner time. Strangely, I felt no hunger, though it was eight hours since I'd last eaten. Two rolls and an apple. I'd kept a can of lager, and I was thirsty, but it needed warming inside my anorak because it had frozen solid. I speculated upon the reaction in the chalet in Courchevel. Had the chalet girl rung the police, who'd rung the ski patrol? Wasn't that the hum of a snowcat coming up the mountain, powerful lamps perhaps seeking me out? I stood up and peered into the darkness, but there was only the cutting wind's moan and the patter of hard little snowflakes. I found the movement the most warming yet, though I couldn't withstand the cold for more than two minutes. So I alternated indoor exercises with lookout spells every ten minutes. It was about 2am when I saw the first star. Climbing through the lookout hole, I saw the silhouette of a mountain too. Eerie, diffused light poured up the valley behind it. I knew they must have come up from Monterey. Then, complete darkness again. No, not quite. The stars remained. Perhaps enough light to venture walking. I knew that moving out would, when I removed the skis destroy half my shelter so I waited another five minutes to be more sure of a lasting clearance before loading my backpack and kicking the igloo out from within walking was painfully slow and I sank thigh deep at almost every step but I could see quite well now though not well enough to discern if there were any ski tracks to follow I put on my skis and was surprised to find that they stuck to the snow Iced up from the igloo, they had to be pushed, even straight down the fall line. Poking the snow ahead before each step for sudden drops, I made slow, safe progress until, as the ice came off, I began to pick up speed down a steepening gradient. I made two short swings and stopped at a cliff edge. I stood in a cleft between two knolls. In front of me, 
Beneath a drop, neither the depth nor gradient of which I could discern, lay a smooth white expanse. I thought that if I could reach that, it would be easy skiing to Monterey. Teetering momentarily, I all but started down towards the snowfield, but I thought better of it and clambered back. Then I saw a hut on one of the knolls. The hut was locked. Frozen banks of snow blocked the narrow balcony. I hacked out a level area close to the woodwork and lay down on my upturned skis, my plastic mac over me, hoping it wouldn't be too long to daybreak. It was 3 a.m. The Milky Way, occupying what seemed a quarter of the sky, was itself blurred by literally clouds of planets and stars. There was almost constant movement. Comets started incessantly, sometimes for huge distances. Others came and went in an eye blink. The sleep that followed was never without an acute awareness of shivering. At 5am, the rising sun shone straight into my eyes. Stiffly, I climbed back upward. Following the stone-hard, rutted track, I found that the snowfield, on which I'd wanted to ski in the night, had in fact been a cloud top. Now it had disappeared to leave a 30 metre drop, but I was lucky. Clambering back up, within about 50 metres I found ski trails. They turned sharp left, dropping behind the hut knoll, where I'd gone straight down. In a matter of minutes, as I skied down the rocky trail, I came upon a snowcat. Saba, inquired the driver. You okay? I told him what had happened. He must have radioed to Monterey, for Marie, the assistant manager at Securité des Pistes, welcomed me to the staff restaurant, where the chef kindly served me a hot cooked breakfast I shall never forget. To make a fool's reward complete, I was given a gleaming Three Valleys badge and informed that the previous season, four of the skiers, stupid enough to venture out alone and without a guide, had not been as lucky. Mike Still Please, donate to the humanitarian charities supporting Ukraine, now. No matter the amount, your donation could offer real support to someone in Ukraine when they need it most. It could be food, clean water, or a safe place to sleep for a family. It could be their lifeline. How good is that? If you've enjoyed this episode of the Fighting Through podcast, please give a few pounds or dollars now. So that's Red Cross, Salvation Army, or any of your own chosen charities. There are some links in the show notes. On behalf of myself and my late dad, thank you so much. I'm Paul Cheel saying bye-bye now.
to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.